COVID has affected us all, and with all the negativity surrounding it, it's often hard to find the positive. One of the blessings it has given us is the opportunity to build an avenue for creating change, starting right here in our community. Discussing topics that affect us most, such as racism in healthcare, maintaining a positive mindset, creating change, the importance of advocacy, and the many lessons we have all learned from COVID. If you or your organization are interested in speaking engagements, send a message to quadcast99 at gmail.com, reach out on Facebook at Quadcast, or online at drquadjo.ca. Welcome to Solving Healthcare. I'm Quadjo Karamante. I'm an ICU and palliative care physician here in Ottawa and the founder of Resource Optimization Network. We are on a mission to transform healthcare in Canada. I'm going to talk with physicians, nurses, administrators, patients, and their families because inefficiencies, overwork, and overcrowding affects us all. I believe it's time for a better healthcare system that's more cost-effective, dignified, and just for everyone involved. Quadcast Nation, I am hyped. I am excited. I'm standing up and I'm pacing. Because I'm talking to my boy, Dr. <laughs> Dennis Kim, who I haven't. What was the last time we see each other? Honestly, brother, I think it was San Antonio, SCCM, whether that was three, four five years ago. I cannot remember, man. I can't remember. I, I What I remember about that is I took the our, our trainees out for a dinner that night. And I went to one of those like all, all you could eat beat, like all, all you could eat meat restaurants. <laughs> Two out of the three were vegetarian. <laughs> I'm like, why are you eating? And I'm like, oh, shit. Anyways. Um, and by the way, people, I like to call Dennis Slash because this man, he has all the assets. Intensivist, general surgeon, trauma surgeon. You know what I mean? Intensivist. Like there's nothing this man can't do. And mad researcher. We got to collaborate like I think once or twice. Yeah, no. yeah, yeah. We've actually had a couple systematic reviews and meta-analyses that uh, have come out of the uh, resource, resource, I should say, optimization network. Yeah. Bam. Bam. Nice plug, buddy. I love it. <laughs> I love it. And oh, and I can't forget, we'll talk about this at some point, but podcaster trauma ICU rounds making its way up the charts. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, so yeah. It's, it's exciting times. So you know, maybe let's just jump into like it's the theme of the days. I think we just have to get into it. COVID. You know what I mean? Like yeah. you and I have, have lived very different COVID existence. Do you know what I'm saying? So just yeah, what yeah. what has it been like being in in the I'm gonna call it the jungle, my friend? Like where you were at in terms of uh what you saw and, and how you guys are doing now. Yeah, you know, it was uh, it got pretty scary there for a while. I think we had a couple of surges and it was the most recent one at the start of this year and the end of 2020, where we really got hit hard on the West Coast and in Los Angeles County specifically. You know, it was amazing just six or seven months what was going on in New York City and the East Coast and us thinking, ah, it must be the subways and everyone's packed into these tin cans, whereas we're kind of spread out in LA. We probably won't have to worry about that. And lo and behold, it came and it came hard. And there was a point I, I still remember very clearly where there was a resident in Los Angeles County that was dying every eight hours from COVID. And we just got so wow. overwhelmed. And, and I got to give a huge, huge shout out to all of our healthcare professionals, especially our nurses. And, you know, I'm, I'm a trauma intensivist. And so we're a busy level one trauma center down here in South Los Angeles. We see over 5,000 patients every year. And so we were kind of sticking to what we knew in our game because we couldn't close the, the trauma center doors. And so our palm crit care, anesthesia crit care, healthcare providers, physicians, fellows, residents, you know, they really, they've been working since the beginning of this pandemic. And when that last surge hit us, they were already so exhausted. And it's only then that we actually kind of jumped into the mix or the fold because at that point, I mean, it was all hands on deck. We were so overwhelmed. We had just regular ward beds 
that were housing four vented patients. Wow. Yeah, it was uh, amazing. We had uh, the news stations here pretty regularly, kind of just documenting just how severe and strained the system was. There was a point where our morgue was completely filled. And so we had these huge tractor trailers and they were just essentially these portable morgues or ice boxes. And that's where we were putting our patients. And, you know, we actually wrote a paper on RRTs together, but there was an RRT going on every hour of the day. Rapid response. Rapid response. Yeah. Rapid response calls. Um, every hour of the day or more when it was really bad and it was on all floors of the hospital in the ICUs, in the ERs, we got a a brand new gorgeous surgery emergency building here uh, at Harbor UCLA just, uh, within the last six years. And our capacity in that ER is about 90 to hundred patients. And we've got a huge acute care side there. Every single one of those rooms was filled with a severe COVID ARDS patient, um, most of whom were intubated, ventilated, being proned. And uh, yeah, it was quite a sight, quite a that sight. Is, that is unbelievable. Like, I don't know if we fully appreciated it up here, like what was going on in California. Like we were catching wind that, you know, it, the volume was high, but that level of death, that level of uh, like that description of like the morgues being full. And it might be my ignorance just being caught up in what was going on here, but wow. Like I don't, I don't think I fully appreciated that. And, and like, was the, was the experience similar to us? Like the type of patients that you were seeing coming in, like what was the demographic or the socioeconomic situation? That's a great question, Claude. And, you know, it's not surprising when we talk about social determinants of health and uh, disparities across uh, the system that the the vast majority of our patients were Latinx and Hispanic, followed by Black, African-American, Asians, and then whites or Caucasians in that order. And we found the same when it came to mortality and death as well. So by far, it was, you know, our, our black and Hispanic community that was disproportionately affected and also sustained the highest mortality. And we're talking young people. These aren't all the old comorbid with, you know, immunosuppression on board. These are young, healthy or presumably healthy. Again, many of our patients don't actually have access to healthcare, um, but previously undiagnosed comorbidities. And there did seem to be um, a certain increased incidence of patients with either undiagnosed hyperglycemia or diabetes, as well as morbid obesity as well. Mm. Yeah, yeah, but we I, saw, yeah, we just had, uh, you know, when it came to the, the number of patients that came from the same household, that was also very impressive. And here we have a lot of multi-generational families all living in in tight quarters spread Mm -hmm. out across the county. And so it was just the perfect setup when you have these stay-at-home orders uh, to have multiple generations of these families being afflicted. So this uh, sounds quite similar to us, like where socioeconomics mattered, like when we have these lockdowns, these, uh, um, that would be my next question, if they were ties to, to essential workers. But like, you know, we did see the demographics, no matter what the age, the, that association with diabetes or prediabetes, obesity. But yeah, like not being in positions that they could isolate from their families, the multi-generational homes is it like, it's so, it's so tragic. Like we would legit, I remember seeing families in and like you would have a family member in the ICU, someone not in the ICU, yeah. maybe both in the ICU. Like it was crazy. Yeah. 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 And, you know, many of them didn't make it. And so you have the patriarch who dies one week and the weekend following one of the three kids is now dead. And so it's just it decimated families. I don't know if you found this, Dennis, but it didn't occur to me till maybe a couple of weeks ago. We would. I heard a couple of nurses and and, uh, staff mentioned like what the challenging part with with a lot of our patients was that you got to know them actually like, you know, because they were pre intubation, they would, you know, they might be on, you know, high flow oxygen. So a lot of oxygen, you can still interact with them. They usually, you know, 
not demented or have like uh, cognitive impairments. Unlike many of our other patients that are coming in with respiratory failure, like we see, we meet them for the first time intubated often. And so you actually develop a relationship with some of your patients. And then three weeks later or a month later, you know, they pass. It's, it's, that was a, an un, underappreciated difficult uh, scenario with this. Yeah. Yeah. No. Uh, you know, I talk with uh, our nurses and the units and the ERs and on the wards and I think that sort of moral sort of injury that many of us sustained during COVID, uh, the effects of that we're still feeling. And you're right, you know, it's not like that patient who comes in with like an H1N1, pregnant, florid ARDS, can't talk to you. They're so cyanotic and hypoxemic, they get snorkeled and then they're in the ICU with their single organ dysfunction. These are patients who are coming in, they're hypoxemic. But they're still able to talk and, you know, they're maintaining their, their, their sats with some high flow and self-proning. And, you know, it, it was amazing how we went from immediate intubation, secure the airway, protected intubation, you know, prevent the aerosolization and just put them on the ventilator. And all these patients ended up dying to, oh, no, 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 no. We got we to gotta try to put that off. And then nope. let them develop their, you know, self-induced lung injury. <laughs> so we kept them non-intubated for That's days and days and days, you oh know, God. week, two weeks. And they're just swinging these plural pressures and just causing harm. And then they got intubated. And by then it's like, you know, we didn't really have many options at that point. So it's interesting how this pendulum has just gone back and forth. And we've learned so much as we've come along. I know this is like audience, like not a, or like healthcare providers, not all medical, but I, I got to ask you about this. Do you think we're, we've been waiting too long to intubate? Like I, I do worry about that. You know, they're on all this oxygen they're, You're not regulating their, their tidal volume. So basically right. if you take big enough breaths, people, sometimes we worry that that could injure your lungs by uh, taking too big a breath. And one of the ways that we protect your the lungs when someone is intubated is just minimize the volume that goes in and out of their lungs. So, yeah, I would love to hear your perspective on, on timing of intubation with COVID patients. Yeah. I mean, it's a great question. I don't know that anyone really has an exact scientific answer to that. I can just say is that our practice evolved. We really did kind of come back to more of a, a middle ground Mm-hmm. Because there was, there were a significant number of patients who in retrospect, and again, 2020, you got the retroscope, we probably left, um, you know, not intubated for fear that once they got on the ventilator, it was sort of like this, we committed them to death. Yeah. And, and the problem, like you mentioned, is whether you're receiving positive pressure ventilation from a ventilator or you're just spontaneously normal breathing like we normally do, if you're having big swings in the pressures within your chest and the lungs, and like you said, you're taking big gasping, big volumes, that's lung injury. And so whether it's coming from a machine or you're doing it yourself, I think, um, you know, it's really important to pay attention to how patients are responding. And there were a couple of small little studies, prospective observational studies, where they would have patients do simple maneuvers like self-prone. So essentially, instead of lying on your back, we will put them on high flow oxygen and then have them lie on their on their abdomens. And the whole idea is that you improve blood flow, improve oxygenation to areas of the lung that are sick just by using gravity to your advantage. And some of these studies show that, you know, people who could actually tolerate that for more than a couple of hours actually did pretty well. And patients who didn't tolerate that, many of them ended up being intubated or going on to a ventilator within a few days. And so there were a number of different measurements we would look at. There's nothing more important than looking at your patient, but that was one of the things that we started to work into sort of our algorithm to figure out, should we be putting this patient on a ventilator sooner than later? Only once we realized that we weren't short of oxygen, which there was a threat of that for a long time. Oh my God, can you imagine? Yeah. And once we realized like what's going on in India right now, and once we realized that, yeah, you know, we do have enough mechanical ventilators at the present time. But I think back to what was going on in New York, and there was a point where there was a complete lack in the whole national cachet of ventilators. Mm -hmm. And so 
you know, I think one of the other points that you you brought up when it came to moral injury with our healthcare professionals and our colleagues, mm-hmm. we were able to develop these relationships with these patients who didn't require intubation and a ventilator. The really crappy thing was that there was no ability to have family or loved ones visit. Oh my God. You got to know the patient, but they were never able to really communicate with their family members. I mean, yeah, we had the whole iPad thing and the iPhone thing, but there's a difference, you know, when you have someone who you love who's sick and you're at their bedside holding their hand um, versus doing it over a telephone. It was, that part was tra- like, it was so hard, like watching, you know, you would see people say goodbye essentially in that first wave yeah. over the, over the phone or over an iPad, like Matt, like legit sit with that people, like the people that you've loved and you're, you're alone. You're with, you know, all these strangers wearing all this personal protective equipment. It's very depersonal, like dehumanizing and you're, you're dying and you can't, be with your loved ones like this is the, the kind of this is the kind of things that we were witnessing and that, that our patients were going through and, and their families were going through so there was there was a lot of moral injury and I, I i'm personally worried you know in terms of even when we get through this how many people are going to leave critical care uh leave i mean healthcare, maybe even in general like bedside healthcare because of what they saw you know? Yeah. I mean that, and then you combine it with the fact that we have a, here, at least we have a national shortage of nurses. And so just trying to get by and you have nurses who in the ICUs are already managing two patients at a time. And now you hand them four patients at a time and then maybe throw in an NA or, or someone else who doesn't have a nursing background into the mix. And we have these team-based models that, you know, organizations like SCCM and others promulgated, but they look way better on paper than they yeah. actually worked out in terms of the, the real world. Yeah. I mean, one thing I'll go, I would say, though, Dennis, that I hope we get to retain. I think you'll agree with me on this within not just critical care, but in medicine, we're very resistant to change. We like any like. I don't know at your site, but even doing a spontaneous breathing trial, sometimes you got to twist somebody's arm. Um, basically a measure to see if someone's ready to come off a ventilator. But, um, you know, the agility, like the way you were describing about us being able to shift gears yeah. and to adapt to evolving data. I have never seen this in medicine, man. Like I'm telling you, things that we know are 10 years, 12 years old that are evidence-based practices still don't get widely adopted. I hope we hang on to that. That part of uh, the pandemic was beautiful. Yeah, no, I mean, I I can't believe we just, we're living through a a pandemic. Like who would have ever thought, you know, like when we first went into critical care quad and we were learning about ventilators, you know, we talked about the the polio epidemic, you know, the polio epidemic, uh, Denmark, 1950s, medical students giving mouth to mouth you know, for their entire shift in order to keep these patients alive and these negative pressure, iron lungs that people were put into. Never mind all that, man. We just lived through COVID-19. We're going through COVID-19. And I totally agree. I mean, I think some of the medical advances that we've made, whether we're talking vaccinations or, you know, understanding the role of medications like like dexamethasone, you know, and just getting those trials pushed through so quickly. And Mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, what was true yesterday is false today and vice versa. So yeah, there's just been a, a huge, huge just outpouring of, you know, information that, uh, it, you know, has relevance at the bedside in the care of our patients. It's, it's really incredible. It, it, it's been great. And, I mean, you brought up vaccinations too. And I was, for some reason, I was a bit reluctant to use the term miracles, like or th- that these were, you know, the vaccines were like essentially miracles. But, you know, I actually think it's appropriate to say that if you think about, you know, how quickly they developed and how safe they've been and uh, like, all part of the, the, the amazing, like a uh, medical developments over the course of this pandemic. But um, 
you would, I think you and I have had different experiences when it comes to rollout, my friend. Oh, like, my I think- goodness. Yeah. <laughs> Dude, what is going on up there? You know, I just uh, I had to before we got on the, the call, I had to check out like what is going on with the, the rollout up there, because, you know, my folks are still knock on wood healthy. They're in their 70s in Toronto. My brother's a teacher up there. And, you know, he just got his first shot like two weeks ago. And mm-hmm. there's there's no plan to get a second shot. And I know the same is happening for healthcare workers in Toronto. And I'm sure in Ontario, as, as well as BC, my my wife and kids have been up on uh, Vancouver Island since November. As soon as things got really bad here and we had to do Zoom school for four different kids, hours of the days, and we knew that things were still open uh, on the West Coast in Canada, they headed up there to be with family. And um, even there in BC, uh, you can't get a vaccine. I mean, sure, if you're vulnerable, elderly, but for the regular run-of-the-mill person, you, you just can't. And here, I can just go to my local Pavilions or Vaughn's uh, supermarket, and they have free vaccines. Just you know, walk into the pharmacy, and they'll give you a vaccine. And I look at our numbers and, you know, we're at about 40% of our population vaccinated. And so in California, we're doing a great job. There's been a great push. Um, I personally got both of my shots, I think, back in February, January. And I just remember it being just so um, such an emotionally charged experience. Right. You know, this this Uh, feeling of like just this added sense of security. yeah, words can't even describe that. But what is going on with you guys? I think you guys are like, yeah. like at four or five percent of the population with one shot in their arm. No, no, no. We we've ramped up big time. Oh yeah, friend. is now, that right? Now we're we're approaching fifty percent, if not. What? This is uh for first dose. Yeah. So okay, this is okay. May nineteenth. Uh, time stamp this bad boy. Um. Yeah, we're we've really wrapped it up, and so. I think I, I can't remember the date where 18 and above are eligible to get uh, M- mRNA vaccinations. We've uh, we've we've shut the door on the AstraZeneca side of things, <laughs> um, man. But that communication piece, we've 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 bungled the communication piece big time. But um, but yeah, the the vaccines are finally starting to to That's to, right. to come out, and I think. If I'm not mistaken, you guys have been seeing the dividends. If I'm not like in terms of hospitalizations and and even case numbers in in Cali, am I wrong? It's been a complete 180. Um, you know, I walk through the hospital now, and we have maybe a handful of patients with severe ARDS or COVID 19. And yeah, it's just uh, it's night and day compared to where we were just a few months ago. And I think in LA County specifically, they've done a fantastic rollout, really making the most out of public forums, uh, arenas, you know, and just making it easy for people to get that shot. And so they've done a great job and I'm really proud of them. I like that idea though, making it easy. I think we were a little bit late in the game, if I'm being honest with you, like uh, online portals. And you you think about some of these the hardest hit spots, like, you know, your, your brothers in, in, in dot. So you're in Peel, Brampton, you know, you know, not everyone has easy access to the internet and what have you. And so we were a bit late to the game to approach the hotspots, like have that approach where we right. bring the vaccines to where they're the problem is. But now we're finally starting to, to see the light at the end of the tunnel. Cause you know, our kids right now ain't in school. Um, and uh, you know, uh, we're, we're at, we have a stay at home order. Uh, till June 2nd. But uh, so, yeah, we we uh, we had some work to do, but we're, we're starting to see the light. No, that's great. And we've certainly things have opened up quite a bit. I get a little concerned, you know, when you hear these messages from the CDC about, you know, if you're vaccinated, you're indoors, don't worry about the mask. And if you're outdoors, don't worry about the mask. There are still variants out there. Not everyone has their second shot. It's not 100%. And we're still in the middle of a pandemic. So some of these messages, I got to say, I am a bit concerned about. And uh, I worry that if we hasten reopening too quickly, we're going to be back into another surge. Yeah, I I hear you about the concern. But you guys also have like some crazy, not in Cali, but like whatever's going on in Florida and Texas. 
Like they went the extreme route. Yeah. And so far, at least I haven't heard of there being surges, but I, I, you know, a mix of vaccinating, a mix of natural immunity, a mix of, you know, the time of year you would think, but Holy cow. I mean, yeah, it's uh, yeah, very diverse and differing approach depending on what state you're in. And I just happened to be in a blue state, California, which I always thought if any state should be sort of incorporated into Canada, I think we take all the states along that West Coast there, you know, uh, Oregon, too. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, maybe Oregon some is, parts. I love, yeah. <laughs> I lo- no, I love Oregon. I love I, I'll, I'll, I'll stick with Oregon State. Washington's a no brainer, man. If yeah. You live any time in Vancouver. But um, what, what, what were your thoughts like, uh, you know, you know, COVID in general put a real lens on where our deficits in the healthcare system were. It also put a lens on on, you know, race and and outcomes. And did, did that did that impact you or even the whole race angle? Like there was a lot of um, there's a lot of overt racism, even, you know, in terms of in the Asian community when it came to. To, to COVID, like, you know, and this is also po- we're approaching a year, George Floyd. So even the racism in general has, has had a lot of traction. Have you, I guess, have you ha- had any recent experiences in terms of, you know, being of Asian descent uh, and during this time that uh, you could speak of? Yeah, I mean, personally, um, you know, I think I'll use the word privilege because I am privileged and I acknowledge that um, and fortunate and lucky that I personally have not experienced it. But you just need to turn on the TV to any any news station and you'll see overt acts of hatred and racism and discrimination. And yeah, it was really interesting to see and and saddening to see it affect the obviously the the black community but also the the asian american pacific or you know islanders as well and people of asian descent and i know that was also happening in canada but uh it was happening so frequently here that you know just yesterday i saw that they were passing a bill you know that these are hate crimes and it almost seems like a no-brainer that yeah obviously you know you're (laughs) you're like going around and assaulting these like elderly Asian people who are defenseless. And so, um, yeah, it was, um, it was, it was disheartening to say the least. Yeah. It is sobering too, man. Like it's just, you know, you just, when it's 2021 or what have you, you think a lot like we'd get past a lot of this. And I, I must say the the racism awareness has has been great to see. Uh, but it, it still baffles me to how ingrained, how systemic some of this is. And, you know, I know the States is probably better at this, but even locally, we didn't cap- capture race-based data, you know, till 20 summer, 2020, you know, and when you look at who the hardest hit spots, the hardest hit communities, you know, it, it was hard to accept that we wouldn't be having a, a tighter, bigger, bigger lens on, on, on race related issues. But yeah, I, I could speak personally, it, like that part of COVID, you know, seeing people that look like you not only getting, getting the most more cases, also getting most severely ill, dying, being hardest to f- impacted by the restrictions, joblessness, schools, all this stuff. And you know, it's setting up the people back that were already on the margins. It was just a hard pill to swallow. Yeah, no, I think um, one of the things that this most recent pandemic has definitely brought light to is the fact that structural racism, structural violence exists Mm -hmm. and it's invisible. You know, Mm -hmm. it's something that you're not aware of until someone actually points it out. And Mm -hmm. um, it's incredible that there are just so many systems in place, whether it's political, economic, financial, that really determine someone's trajectory from birth and these mm-hmm. are factors that we don't have uh, an influence over or that many of these innocent uh, victims uh, never had a chance to change because they were born into certain conditions um, that were perpetuated with no way to really get out of those particular situations and that's why i think when it comes to this stuff it really 
that level of understanding and having that level of compassion is so important. Like realized because of those structural systemic issues, that battle to get to a seat at the table is extremely difficult. There's that many more hoops to jump through. Absolutely. It made me think about too, uh, that it's like you and I, we, we finish around the same time and you got, you, you experience, you're experiencing healthcare in the States. Okay. And you know, you always hear, I always get this question. You ever think about heading to the States? Uh, would you ever consider, <laughs> I don't know why I'm using that voice, but <laughs> wait, yeah. Would, would you consider working in the States uh, at any point? And um, my personal belief was always no, but you're, you're there, you're living it. And so I'm curious, I don't know if we've really jumped into it even offline as like what it's been like in terms of even at a system level, on a patient to patient level, like what has it been like being south of the border? That's a great question, Quad. And, and honestly, I have a, a little bit of a um, different lens when it comes to that uh, particular question. And that's mainly because as a Canadian, uh, I'm used to a public health care system. And in many parts of the U.S. and in many different healthcare systems, obviously it's two tiered. You've got the, the private side of things. I've been blessed that because I'm a trauma surgeon and I mainly treat and care for patients who are uninsured, uh, marginalized, and an indigent patient population, that I've always worked in a county hospital setting, which is essentially public health care or public access. And so, you know, currently I'm down in South Los Angeles at Harbor UCLA Medical Center. In addition to being a level one trauma center, we're essentially here for any and everyone, irregardless of ability to pay. So the vast majority of our patients, I mean, many of them will have Medi-Cal and Medicare, but many of them come in without private insurance. And so I've never had to really bill. I mean, this sounds a little insane, but, you know, I've never had to generate RVUs in, a, in order to be financially compensated. I see a patient, I sign the consult note, and that's pretty much about it. I don't have to keep track of procedures that I'm doing in order to get remunerated. And as a county physician, I'm essentially on the clock. Uh, you know, at minimum, I do 40 hours a week. For most of us in our trauma group, we do about 100 to 120 hours a week. And that's how we get compensated. So it's a little frightening because as I think about, you know, potentially after 10 years of being here, moving on to my next adventure or endeavor, I feel a little ignorant because I really haven't been exposed uh, to all the bean counters that are sort of, you know, really kind of keeping track and tabs on your productivity as well as your, your margins. Wow. So that's a, I guess this is a bit of a different answer than I was expecting. Like, uh, you know, I, I, I talked to a trauma surgeon, Dr. Nee Darko, and he was describing a bit of, you know, the, the insurance issue. And, and so it, it's kind of nice to hear that you haven't had to deal with it. I, I would, that would trouble me to know to a great extent to have to think about, you know, compromising care based on what insurance policy somebody has. And so I, I reassured that you didn't have to deal with that. But what about like, um, you know, you hear a lot about it being a lit- litigious environment down South and, you know, and like, did you experience any differences in practice based on these concerns? Yeah, no, that's another great question. Uh, again, personally, I think I've been very fortunate Um, in this particular setting, you know, where our patients tend to be um, financially disadvantaged when they first come through our our doors, whether injured following trauma or because they've got an acute uh, medical illness. This is oftentimes the first time in their adult lives they've actually encountered a physician or the healthcare system. And I think there's just so much gratitude that there are centers like ours where we are open 247 to meet any and all medical needs you have. They're just so happy to actually speak with someone and have someone care for them and then provide some continuity or try to get them impaneled into LA County care or to 
you know, meet with a social worker or case manager so that they can get their, their mom Medicare or their father Medicare, that they're just so grateful that I don't think they're really here to kind of sue, you know, and be litigious. I think there's a lot of gratitude. And, and honestly, it's one of the things that really makes working at a county hospital so fulfilling. I mean, most county hospitals are always going to be the hub for academic teaching programs, residencies, and most will also have some sort of level one or two trauma center. But it's it's really the patient and the mission that makes it such a satisfying and uh, wonderful job to be in. No, oh, wow. And that's honestly, I'm glad to hear that because it sounds like it was a, a, it has been a rewarding experience. I was also thinking too, Dennis, like you going from an Ottawa trauma center to, a, you know, LA County trauma center, that must be, you must be seeing completely different thing, like patients coming through the door. Hey, like, yeah, yeah. I mean, again, I think if you look at the epidemiology of injury throughout uh, the U.S., falls, gravity, motor vehicles are always going to be the number one and two in terms of the mechanisms of trauma. And then we have, you know, actual gun violence. Amazingly, when you actually look at the incidence of death across those three, although firearms accounts for maybe in many centers, maybe 4%, 5% of the actual overall trauma, the, the incidence of death is actually equal to those other two mechanisms. And so it's amazing. You know, I think back to Ottawa, I spent seven years there. I saw one gunshot wound. That was one people, <laughs> one non-operatively, which is, you know, it's amazing. I mean, you got to love Canada, right? Like restrictive mm-hmm. gun laws and access to guns. And we saw one And actually, that was one of the major drivers of me coming down to the U.S. and to California, San Diego, and then L.A. County for the last 10 years was I never really got a lot of experience performing operative trauma because so much trauma, as you know, in the ICU is non-operative, right? You you bring them in, you manage their ICPs, transfuse them some blood, get them for an angioembolization if their spleen's bleeding. There's not a lot of operating And so going down to San Diego was my first real experience with penetrating trauma. But even there, uh, San Diego is a beautiful city and it's fairly safe. Amazing. Yeah, amazing, right? Legoland, the zoo, all of it. Just amazing. (laughs) Balboa Park. But once I got to, to South LA, that's when we really started to experience trauma. And here, definitely since the beginning of the pandemic, we've seen a big uptick in terms of the amount of interpersonal violence, self-harm, as well as uh, gun-related injuries. And during the summer months, usually between June to October, we usually see on the order of at least two to four gunshot wound victims a day. And it comprises overall during the peak months, about 30% of all the patients we see will be coming in with a penetrating mechanism. So stab wound, gunshot wound. So yeah, it's, uh, it's really unfortunate to see, but um, there's certainly a need for, for trauma surgeons, as well as not just caring for our patients once they've been injured, but also for the primary, secondary, and tertiary prevention as well. Wow. So like, I'm going to say that, like, that's a different world, man. Yeah. That's a different world. It really is. When you're going from one GSW gunshot wound uh, per per year. And honestly, oh, seven years. Sorry. Seven years. (laughs) It's funny too. Actually, I'm thinking back at ICU. Maybe I've seen one in the last two or three years. Um, two, Two to four a day. In, in peak season. Wow. I mean, I just think to myself, the perspective it must, you must have when you know you come from a country where gun, the gun laws are so much more restrictive. Like, right. does that, do you have, I don't know, is that a battle for you mentally? Like, uh, when you see that many people, is that, a, am I lining you up to get in trouble? I actually with that question. No, no. <laughs> I mean, we're talking about this all the time, you know, because we are really trying to change the narrative as well as the perception of firearm injuries and firearm-related deaths. 
and we're taking more of an epidemiologic injury prevention and almost like a biopsychosocial approach to this to have people understand that the gun or these firearms are just the vector. There's also a host. There's also population-related factors and other things that contribute to these happening. And so where along that sort of chain can we make changes to decrease the burden of firearm-related injuries? And uh, it's, it's unfortunate because, again, similar to like we were talking about with COVID, this is a disease that disproportionately affects young Black males as well as young Hispanic and Latinx males as well. And so plenty of years lost, so many broken families. And, uh, you know, not a 24-hour period goes by at our hospital where we're not seeing someone who's involved in some sort of a shooting. And then you also have the incidence or the issue of recidivism because many of our recidivism is just, uh, you know, happening again and again. We have patients who, you know, are stuck in this vicious cycle of violence. And again, a lot of this comes down to the oppression and the structural racism that is so prevalent in this country and in many countries around the world. And it's this never ending cycle until one day it's that final incident where they just can't survive or don't survive. You made some, uh, some reference to making, you know, more some, some systematic change. Like, are, are you, are you working in that sense to, or is this something that you're just like becoming more aware of, uh, or is this something that you're getting involved in or your department's getting involved in? Cause that's what it comes down to. Like, honestly, you and I are very similar at stages in our career. And my epiphany just like, just, uh, you know, take a step back. My epiphany came when it came to COVID when I was, you know, my, our research is on how to, you know, how to reduce spending, right. And, and improve care. And then, you see these patients come in with COVID and they have often like modifiable risk factors, like their obesity, their hypertension, their type two diabetes. And then I'm saying to myself, man, imagine if we started to intervene earlier to be able to prevent this. Right. And the same thing with um, we, Mikey, uh, Mike Hartwick, uh, he's the one that kind of got this, uh, this uh, in my ear about with us starting bridges over barriers. So like it's a, a charity that we use to give basic needs to to kids in the community so that ultimately we're thinking that they prevent them from overdosing from that the mental illness side, from suicide and all that stuff, Do intervening early so that we could prevent them from coming in the ICU. But, you know, we're at unfortunately mid career now, you know what I'm saying? This is stuff that we're not talking about in medical school. So yeah, the long-winded question is, are you, you guys getting involved? What inspired it and how, what's it looking like? Yeah. So again, great question. I'll be honest with you. It's something that I'm just starting to familiarize myself with and sort of immersing myself into. Uh, in our group of uh, trauma surgeons and the folks from the emergency department, as well as social work, and some of our community partners, we've developed a hospital-based violence intervention program, HBVI. And that's a model that uh, has been incorporated into a number of trauma hospitals and has almost become a mandate to, to be a trauma program here in the United States. And what these programs do is at the time of hospital admission, we identify patients who are victims of crime or patients who are involved in gangs. And we reach out to them and we have uh, partners in the community, many of whom have actually been involved in that gang life and have been sort of um, reformed, if that's the right word. And they'll help connect our patients and their families with resources things like tattoo removals for for patients who have gang tattoos that are visible, uh, helping them to get um, graduate education or graduate from high school, as well as finding jobs and employment, as well as helping with medical, legal, and legal fees uh, in cases of a wrongful death. So there are several programs like that out there. 
you know, with the AAST American Association for the Surgery of Trauma, uh, I'm one of many members of a prevention committee. And there we're always talking about things that we could be doing, not just in the sort of secondary or tertiary phases. So, you know, primary, we think primary prevention, what can we do to decrease the burden of firearm related injuries? Well, obviously we should be doing background checks on people. Um, if people do have mental health disorders or a risk for depression and suicide, how do we get them plugged in so that uh, they're a decreased risk of harm to themselves or others? And, and how can we improve our, our background checks, for example? Secondary prevention. So once someone's been injured, secondary prevention really comes down to is how do we decrease that burden of death? And that's where things like the Stop the Bleed program has come into play. And that's a program, the American College of Surgeons Committee on Trauma, as well as a number of other organizations, which was developed following the Sandy Hook Elementary uh, mass shooting. And the whole idea there is once someone is shot, how can we stop them from dying before they arrive at the trauma center. And so placing tourniquets, wound packing, direct pressure are all things that we're trying to educate our, our, our population on broadly. And then the HBVI, that all kind of comes into play as a tertiary prevention. So once our patients survive that injury, how can we get them reintegrated? Um, and oftentimes that also not just involves screening for things like gang involvement, but also screening and treating for PTSD, as well as alcohol screening and brief interventions, which has become a mandatory part of our trauma care from day to day. I, I mean, I got to tell you, this is the stuff I, at this stage of, of life that gets me really excited. You know, knowing that there's steps being made to try and you know, primary prevention for preventing people from walking through the door, but also coming back. You right. know what I'm saying? Because honestly, this is this there's probably as in my opinion, this is something I think is just so undervalued right now is that prevention piece that like I really think even from a cost effective point of view or just a moral point of view, really investing in that element like what we could do to get people to prevent them from walking in the door in the first place is, is huge. And huge. I, I would love to see, you know, I'd love to see if there's been much in the way of evaluations of such programs, but, you know, and cause I think, you know, when it comes to change, sometimes you do need that, that formal evaluation. And, and this is, you know, one of my biases when it comes to decision makers, they love seeing the bottom line. They love seeing how much they'll save or, 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 or not save. And so that's why we've really put a focus on uh, adding costs to so many of our uh, projects. But yeah, I, 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 so I guess the question is, do you know if a lot of these interventions have shown to be influential or is it just kind of at the stage where, you know, a lot of this is being evaluated yeah, I mean, certainly here we're evaluating it uh, in Los Angeles County with the development of our trauma recovery center. But there are plenty of data out there from other more mature systems. And again, this is really a team sport. We're talking social work. In our case, our, our community partners, Crossroads, uh, nursing, social work, trauma, ER, nursing. It really is a team sport. And so our experience here is still early but there's plenty of other more mature programs that have shown improvements in terms of our patients and recidivism, as well as reintegration, as well as potentially decreasing costs of readmission and recidivism as well. I could promise you, I'm never going to say that word ever in my life. Recidivism. <laughs> you got me. Recidivism? Recidivism. Recidivism. Boom. Yeah. Say that four times fast. Right. Yo, Listen, one of the things we, we should reflect on, too, like I keep saying mid-career. I think that's fair to say hey, we're mid-career. Mid-career, dude, brother. I mean, uh, we've been uh, out like just about 10 years, right? Over, we yeah, finished critical care in 08, 08, 09. I finished, I finished in 2010, dog. 10. Okay, yeah. So, yeah. Okay, yeah. I did 10, too, because I did another two yeah. years in San Diego. So, 08 yeah. for Ottawa, 2010. Dude, it's, yeah, it's 11 years. We're yeah. career. So like reflections, like when you look back at 
where you are now, where we are now, you know, is there, is there anything that like, are you, are you happy where you are? The things that you would change, would you do this all over again? You know, to the, the few folks that, that are listening that are thinking about careers in either critical care, trauma, surgery, you know, and like, and once again, I'm just to, for, for the audience, you're also like prolific researcher. I love your research game because we have the similar kind of like approach. Yeah. Um, podcasting, knowledge translator. Like, would you do it all all over again? Yeah. You know, honestly, I couldn't imagine doing anything differently. Um, I feel that uh, every day I come to work and this is no joke. And, and I tell people this all the time. You know, I, I drop our right now because my family's all up in Canada. We have a dog sitter, Joshua. I drop off my dog there. I start driving in. I listen to my Calm app, Tamara Levitt. And I think you, you listen to your what? My oh, calm, calm app. app. Yeah, okay. calm, calm. Nice. Yeah. Self-reflection, meditation, okay. mindfulness on the way to work. While driving? Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, man, let me yeah. try and tap into that shit. Okay. <laughs> and, you know, honestly, I think to myself every day I come to work how fortunate and blessed I am and how much I love my job because I know that I'm going to be helping someone and doing some good. And, uh, you know, to be able to do trauma together with critical care, emergency general surgery, uh, amazingly, it's much easier to do that down here in the U.S. Um, because just by virtue of being a trauma surgeon and the fact that critical care here is very compartmentalized, um, it's easy to do all three of those things. I, I think it's much more difficult in Canada where, you know, surgeons oftentimes don't have a foothold in the ICU. And so maybe they can do the trauma, maybe they can do the general surgery, but not the ICU. And so, yeah, I think um, I wouldn't change anything. And, and there's so many lessons learned. Um, the one thing that's always persisted is I know I know nothing. And every day there's something new to learn, which I just love. And like you mentioned, the podcast, I think, uh, has been wonderful because you get to just meet you know, really interesting, cool people, you know, people who are doing the research, people who, you know, you otherwise might not actually get a chance to talk with outside of maybe a meeting. And even then it might be all kind of awkward and weird because they're having drinks with their friends and you're like, hey, you don't know me, really like you, what's up? And it just gets all awkward, right? And I'd be your friend. Right, exactly. So yeah, that's been a lot of fun. And, um, you know, being in academics, I think, uh, is also, we're very fortunate, the ability to stay on top of, of cutting edge research and teaching. And so much of teaching is learning. And uh, again, like you mentioned, the clinical research, um, you know, it's, it's tough to, to do that whole triple threat thing. And I think these days, most people try try to focus in on one or two areas. And that's probably the better way to go these days, because I think there's just too much. And also you got to throw an in administration into the clinical, the education, the research. We have a lot of administrative, you have a new administrative role. Word. Word. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this will be the first show we've done. I think, uh, but yeah, yeah. Yeah. How about you? You tell me what's how how's it been for you? What's the journey been like? And then tell us about this new leadership opportunity oh, or position. I feel, like, I feel like I'm on your show. So <laughs> I'll get it out, out of the way. Yeah, it's a new department. Well, as of July 1st, I'll be department head for critical Whoa. care at the Ottawa Hospital. Crazy. Incredible. You know, I I congratulations, uh, brother. Thanks, buddy. It's uh I, I I'm still it still doesn't feel real actually. But um yeah, I mean, I think our job is it's a, an absolute gift, an absolute gift. And I, I say, like, even if you think about what, how it's played out throughout the pandemic, like, think about this. A lot of people stuck at home, no interaction, no connection. We got to go to work with a purpose, right? The purpose to get our patients through, get to have that, like, truly meaningful interactions with people. Like, there's not nothing like a pandemic to, to put that into context. You know what I'm saying? Like, how meaningful life is, how, how important it is to connect. You really put, um, you really get a sense of where your values are, what, what's important in life. You know, part of the job too that people don't appreciate that you alluded to is like, you don't know what's coming through the door. You have to be on your toes. You have to be willing to learn. I've learned so much from, I've, I mean, I've, I've been in situations where the medical student made a diagnosis 
um, totally made us pivot in terms of a patient's management, you know, like having that environment where you like, it's a, truly is a team and yeah. you got to stay home. Hum- oh my God. Like if any of the upstarts are listening, you got to stay humble. You, you know, the nurse, the freaking PSW can make a call. Sometimes you got to yep. listen because oh man, I changed that urine. It smelled, it smelled funny. You know, that patient's here for COVID and <laughs> right. urine smell funny. I'm like, okay, okay, maybe you're onto something. I'll give you a Tober bomb. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> like, uh, you gotta be, like, if you really want to do this job well, you have to be humble, keep an open mind. And um, yeah, that triple threat element, I I gotta tell you, I, it, it, that part, I won't lie, has been exhausting, whether you're trying to be an educator, or a researcher, you know, the the podcasting, the admin side and the, um, but one thing I will say it's been absolutely rewarding is just like thinking about scale. So this is why I think that I've been so much enjoying the, the podcast stuff. Cause like you, like the amount of knowledge you get to throw to the world, it could be logarithmic. Yeah. You know what I mean? And so like, this is the part where I get really excited. Cause you, I some, some kid, some upstart in Oklahoma could be listening to this bad boy right now and being like, this is how I'm going to, why I'm going to approach medicine. Like you could have that kind of ability to throw down, which has been a huge change from when we were, you know, thinking about, uh, or when we were even finishing our training. Cause it's been oh, that long. Yeah. yeah, it really has been. I mean, and you look at sort of 2010, that area or that time, that's when sort of like MCRIT, Scott Weingart, and all these other sort of FOMED podcasts started coming out. Yep. And then, you know, in the last 10 years, the, the podcast industry has really exploded. I mean, I think the latest numbers in iTunes, there's over a million podcasts, yeah. a million. Yeah. And yeah. I mean, can't imagine how many episodes that are out there to download. And I agree. I, I think the reach as well as the ability to kind of interact uh, with your listeners, it, it's unparalleled. And you can't get that with YouTube or five-minute little videos. I mean, when you're in someone's ear, whether it's they're on a run or at the gym or shopping, it's it's not five minutes. They're dedicating 20, 30, 40, an hour sometimes. Yeah. And so it, it really is impactful. And again, I remember just like during fellowship, if we did a teaching activity, usually meant, you know, like six residents in a classroom and then you pulling up your, your old ass PowerPoint, <laughs> same old slides. And you do that like six <laughs> times a year. So your, your reach was, you know, 36 students, 36 <laughs> residents, man, we throw down a podcast episode and like thousands of people listen to that. Yeah. And so, uh, yeah, it's been, it really uh, is crazy. It really it, is crazy. It really is crazy. And it's, it's just, it's a great way to amplify. Like I tell the youngins, actually it's part of my platform when I applied for the position is like, it's not enough now to, to just do research. Like you got to right. think about how you're going to amplify the, your message. You right. know what I mean? What's going to be the knowledge translation you have a, I think it's important to have a social media presence. You're going to hear this now. Like our department's going to have a social media presence, it's going to have an updated website. Nice. It's going to throw down because I think this is the future. Yeah, no, no. I checked out the website uh, a couple of days ago and I was like, I think I saw these fellows here like four years ago, dude. <laughs> and like, what? What? What is oh this? But you're right. You know, <laughs> and, um, you know, I, I know nothing about business and marketing. But I think of what you're talking about or a lot of what you're getting to is you got to have a brand these days. Yes. You know, you got to have a brand. So as you're starting out, figure out what you want to really focus in on and then make that part of your brand. So if it's education, figure out in terms of what particular sort of, um, you know, aspect of education and the best way to get your message out there and build a brand for yourself. And I think it is important to be on social media, to be responsible on social media. Um, mm-hmm. Again, having a web presence and so much also comes down to, again, engaging uh, with others yeah. and uh, believing in yourself and looking towards uh, making yourself better every day. There's something new to learn. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I do, I, I do want to touch a little bit on research too, because yeah, as we mentioned, you and I are 
both do quite a bit. And uh, I'll still, I'll never forget as fellows. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? I, pre- I presented, I remember doing this presentation on race and pa- palliative care outcomes. And I, I love Dennis because he just lets you know how it is. He's like, quad, like this is one of the worst. <laughs> This is one of the worst presentations or <laughs> projects I've ever seen. Dude, I think my project was uh, penetrating violence in eastern Ontario over a five-year period. And the other project I did, and neither of these were published, you know, was like tracheostomies in the ICU, a uh, descriptive experience. Oh, um, and yeah, that was bad. But the, the point I want to make is, I actually, I don't want to take the, I, I, I often offend ICU docs researchers when I say this is like, you know, if you, if we're honest with each other, we haven't moved the needle in, in critical care outcomes in how long. Yeah. And so I've, I always like to ask like a fellow researcher, like, what, what is it? Like, are we not thinking big enough? Are we, are we thinking too small or, or do we, uh, are we not div- um, encouraging enough diversity of like um, perspectives when it comes to our research, but what do you have uh, any insights with this, with this shit? Yeah. I mean, I think depending on the topic, it can be all of the above. Yeah. And so, you know, as a trauma surgeon uh, and as you, as an intensivist, you see TBI all the time, right? Traumatic, Traumatic brain, brain injury. injury patients coming in, bonking their heads, whether they're on, you know, a blood thinner or not nothing has changed when it comes to managing these patients since like the seventies, eighties. I mean, you know, we're in the 21st century and we still can't figure out how to optimize outcomes in patients who have suffered a TBI. Mm -hmm. So again, I think some of it may have to do with the actual disease process or organ under investigation. Mm -hmm. Uh, Another factor or something that we should be thinking about is that there's so much interconnectedness between organs in the human body. And a great Mm -hmm. example is like renal failure or or kidney problems. We know that a lot of hospitalized patients, especially those patients that come into the ICU, have, uh, you know, will have an injury to their kidneys. And now we're starting to realize, you know, it's not so much a kidney problem. It's probably more of a heart problem. And the other thing we're starting to realize is that those people who have even just a slight bump in their creatinine, which is a measure of their kidney function, guess what? Six months, 12 months later, they're at an increased risk for cardiovascular death. So I think, uh, yeah, change is slow. Uh, I think in certain areas, we have moved the needle a bit. And, um, you know, I think as our science gets better and as we start to get a little bit more personalized and really start to take advantage. Amen. Yeah. Oh, man, the personalization, I think, is I think think this is where we were missing the boat, actually. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like if I think a of a large part of it, yeah. Yeah, like this is like a random example. You get what is like just to, the way you frame the question. Like maybe there's a signal towards if you get uh just a random example, if you get uh steroids in in a, someone that has a bad infection, septic shock. What maybe we should shouldn't be asking if everyone that you evaluate if you give them steroids, what's are they going to improve or live or die? But maybe it's what you need, what, what population seems to be most responsive. Right. You know what I mean? And then to the other part of your, your, your question or a comment about like, you know, thinking about things more holistically, I think that's part of what we're missing too, is like isolated outcomes that are, you know, isolated interventions that are very specific when we know, right. more, you know, it, your heart matters, your lungs matter, your kidneys matter. So it, to, to look at things in a more holistic lens, I think this is another thing that we're missing within ICU research, but I think it's coming though. Like, I think there's enough oh, yeah. people that are, that are like, especially the personalization side. I think, you know, some of the upstarts coming through, it's like, we, we need to, in my opinion, pivot how we've been approaching things over the last how many years and, and really think about, um, things out of more global lens. Yeah, no, I mean, like early goal directed therapy is great. And we learned a lot from that and what works and what doesn't. But the fact of the matter is patients coming in with sepsis have particular phenoangenotypes. 
And I think we're starting to realize that there are a limited sort of number of, of different types. And mm-hmm. so if we can start to pinpoint, hey, this particular patient is of this phenotype, then maybe we need to target interventions differently for that patient yes. versus another patient. You know, it's amazing. You see some of these patients, they come in and they're just in this hyper inflammatory serves response. And no matter what you do, it just their body just wreaks havoc against their body. And then other patients, they just kind of come in, you treat them the same way. And then 48 hours later, they're better. I mean, so much of that is going to be related to, I'm sure, underlying environmental genetic factors are also going to play a role. And then again, the presence or absence of, of comorbidities that have been till that time, perhaps uh, undiagnosed, mm-hmm. as well as, of course, timeliness and aggressiveness of interventions. Yeah, I agree, I agree 100 percent. Listen, Danny, Dr. Danny Kim, a.k.a. DK, <laughs> where can people get a hold of you? Yeah. So you can follow me on social media. I'm at Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. The handle's at Trauma ICU Rounds. That's also the name of the podcast. We're doing pretty well here in the U.S., but would love to get a little bit more of a foothold in Canada. So if you're interested in trauma, emergency general surgery, critical care made clear, concise, and simple, tune in. We're on iTunes, Spotify, all the major podcast directories, and would love to hear from you. I'm at DennisYoungKim at gmail.com, or just reach out to me at TraumaICURounds at gmail.com, my brother. Oh, man. I, and I love the show. It, I got to tell you, though, is when I knew you were doing a podcast, it wasn't what I expected. You were all business. <laughs> like I, I don't know if this is coming through, guys, but like Dennis and I are like we're a bit cut from the same cloth. We don't take our, ourselves too seriously. Right. But what you want a podcast is like, ladies and gentlemen, we are going to enter this uh, like it's total serious game, man. It's 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 good though, man. Like uh, like uh, I learned a lot quickly, and I think for all our our trainees, especially not even trainees, but like your early career. They need refreshers on specific content. This, this this podcast is pure gold, yo. Uh, I appreciate that. I appreciate that a lot, Quad. Absolutely. Well, thanks again for doing this. You yes, are my a brother. gem, my friend. So good to see you. I'm glad we could get together. For real, you too. All right, man. Quadcast Nation, thank you so much for listening. That's my boy, Dennis Kim. I hope you loved it as much as I did. Follow us on Instagram, YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, at Quadcast. Leave any comments at quadcast99 at gmail.com. Get on the wellness campaign. Get on that solventwellness.com, solventwellness.ca. Help us change that boogie in the healthcare space. Reduce that burnout. Leave us a five-star rating on iTunes. It's much appreciated. It helps with the visibility of the show. And y'all, stay safe, stay beautiful, and we're going to connect again real soon. Peace.